Welcome to the Behind the Drapes podcast. I'm your host, Kenny. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Alex Cohen. Dr. Cohen, in my opinion, is a great example of how, from anesthesiology, you can make your way into hospital administration and work your way up the chain. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Cohen about his training in Boston, taking a quick pit stop in Seattle to do a regional fellowship, and then coming to Rhode Island Hospital where he helps start the regional acute pain subdivision of the anesthesia department, as well as how he got involved in hospital administration. Stay tuned to see what's going on behind the drapes with Dr. Cohen. All right. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you for having me. Uh, So how's your day today? Your P2? Yeah, P2. It's not a bad day. I got out at 1.30. I stayed for about an hour after doing some work, but I worked with uh, two good senior residents. So that's always a predictor of uh, a reasonable day, I'll tell you that. Nice. What kind of stuff were you doing? Uh, for once, I actually did a whole bunch of neurosurgery cases, a couple big neurosurgery cases, you know, a couple of fiber optic intubations and fun. things like that. So uh, it was fun. an unusual day for me, but it was a good day. Makes for a fun uh, morning. Yeah. And uh, because the residents are so prepared, it was very easy to just, you know, go in, do something different, let them, you know, learn a new skill, um, which, you know, if things are not prepared, it just starts off on a terrible foot. So let's start off for a good day. Love it. Love it. Did you do anything else productive in your day after you left work? Uh, yes, I grocery shopped. Nice. Uh, although I think my family ate about half of the groceries that I ever bought. So, Are you uh, a Greg's guy? I strike, I strike you as a Greg's guy. Uh, I am a Trader Joe's guy. Oh, nice. Me too, actually. What is Greg's? Isn't that uh, East Providence thing? Or uh, East, Greenwich, East Greenwich thing, I mean? Isn't that the place that makes the cakes? Oh, you're right. What's the grocery store I'm thinking of? You're, you're thinking of Dave's. Dave's, that's yeah. it. The other generic I'm also a Dave, name. I'm also a Dave's guy, yes. <laughs> uh, you're correct. I'm also a Dave's guy. That's about 30 seconds from my house. So that always makes it uh, easy. But because I got out early, you know, between um, Providence and East Greenwich, Warwick, hop off the highway and just grab some uh, Trader Joe's stuff because my kids love the snacks and all those kind of things. Oh, yeah. They just opened one in Providence. So we've been there like three or four times now. Yeah, it's big, right? Uh, yeah, it's pretty big. It's right across the street from Felino's downtown. Okay, yeah, the one in the one in works kind of smallish, but again, I like to get in and get out and be done with it. So it's you know same thing every time. Yeah, and so you did you live in you lived in Boston for quite a big portion of your life, right? It was undergrad, yeah. medical school, and then residency. Yeah, I left. Uh, I left Florida, which is where I grew up, uh, at eighteen, never to return. Uh, so I lived in Boston, as you said, I basically lived in, you know, Medford for two years for undergrad. And then the second two years of undergrad, four years of med school, and then uh, all four years of residency, I was at Tufts. So I lived in Chinatown for, what is that, 12 years. What do you like, what do you like better, Providence or Boston? Oh, they're so different. I mean, Boston, I have like this nostalgia for Right. But like, it's definitely much more enjoyable living here. Every time my wife's family's from, you know, outside of Boston. Um, and every time we have to drive back through the traffic and things like that, I'm just like, oh, I'm so glad we live in Providence. You know, even our worst traffic is a tenth of what it is in Boston. So right. uh, from a lifestyle perspective, it's exponentially better. Right. Right. Did you have your eyes on this place when you were like finishing up training? Um, you're talking about Providence or yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and like, we're not, and both, both. 
So, uh, as you said, I did Tufts residency while I was, um, the senior residents at Tufts used to rotate down at the old Providence anesthesia group, which was our, you know, our predecessor. Um, we used to rotate down here for pediatrics and thoracic surgery, uh, cause we didn't have numbers up there. And so in my second last year rotated down here when I became a chief resident, uh, as a CA3, me and my co-chief actually really liked coming down here so much that we started an advanced rotation uh, so that we could come back uh, as well as any of our classmates. Uh, and that actually stayed for a couple more years after, you know, we'd graduated and uh, gone to fellowship and whatnot. And so we created advanced rotation to do regional anesthesia and more peds, uh, which people really loved. Uh, and it was a good experience because, you know, there was the ASC here, which there really wasn't a, uh, which is our ambulatory center. Uh, there wasn't really a similar thing at Tufts. So it was awesome. While I was down here, the former chair, uh, which was Dr. Burt, sat me down uh, in the old cafeteria on the window and goes, you know, I'm not going to try his, his accent because he had this, you know, booming voice. But he sat me down and he said, so, Doc, your regional anesthesia skills, we're opening up uh, a new orthopedic surgery center. We would love to have those skills uh, when you're done with fellowship. And so I said, oh, that, you know, that sounds pretty good. You know, put, put it on the books to have an interview. And I went to fellowship. And uh, while I was home for, no, let me rephrase that. Before I left for fellowship, I actually interviewed with this group. And then while I was home for uh, Thanksgiving with my wife and my new baby visiting her family. Uh, I got a call from Krista Vignan, uh, who's our one of our other vice chairs, and said, hey, we'd love to make you an offer. We'd love to have you join the group. Uh, at the same time, they offered two of our two of my former residency mates jobs, and we all kind of joined the group at the same time. So it kind of flowed nicely, and it was a, a, you know, a group that I knew well. I knew a lot of the people, some of it come down from Tufts, but it was kind of an easy transition that I, I was pretty confident I was going to be happy with. Cool. Uh, why anesthesia in the first place? Why not? No, I'm just kidding. Um, my path to anesthesia was a little funny. I think that anesthesia probably found me more than, you know, the other way around. Uh, I started, you know, when I finished medical school, I matched into a categorical general surgery spot. Uh, and then throughout the course of that intern year, I kind of realized that I actually didn't like operating. <laughs> I liked the operating room. I liked, uh, you know, the high acuity. I liked doing procedures, things like, like that, which, you know, is very common. Um, but I really didn't like operating. Uh, I was fortunate that one of the people who was in my intern class uh, actually had quit her categorical anesthesia spot to go follow, follow her um, uh, significant other, I think it was her fiance at the time, to a spot at Vanderbilt where he had taken a professorship. Uh, and so I was able to talk to the program director and kind of convince them that uh, I would be a good fit to join their program. And I was the last year where you could just do a, a swift little move over from you know, intern year in specialty X to whatever your categorical spot was. Uh, and so, I did that, never looked back and served me pretty well. So I, I think it, 
I say that that was probably like the defining moment of my career is like that ability to move over, set things in motion to end up where I'm now. Yeah, that's pretty cool to identify like a single moment like that. Do you yeah, feel like sure. your your interest in surgery, that background is what guided you towards regional as like a subspecialty within anesthesia? Or was there something as you were going through your residency experience that drove you towards it? Interesting question. I think, I don't think it had to do with surgery so much as liking the procedural aspect of things. So I really like ultrasound. Uh, obviously, you know, everyone likes doing procedures, putting needles, places, things like that. Uh, I think that when I picked doing my fellowship, the amount of jobs on the market was so unclear. Uh, you know, now if you are in anesthesia, there's a job for everyone, which is great. I think that's awesome. Uh, but back then it was unclear where things would go. Would there be enough docs? Would there be too many docs? Would there be too many CRNAs, not enough CRNAs? Would there be too many residents, not enough residents? And so all those things, I kind of was like, you know, I need something that's going to give me a little bit of, uh, you know, a standout. Um, and I really like the procedural aspect. I think I've probably had this conversation with you. If you love cardiac, do cardiac. Or if you love PE, which I didn't. If you love kids, you got to do pediatrics. I didn't like that either. Um, and then other than that, there were no other specialties that really seemed interesting to me. And so I kind of said, well, this works out nicely. It's a, it's a good fit for the type of people I like to be with. Uh, and it's a good fit for the type of procedure that I like to be involved with. Uh, I kind of went through my training being like, if I could do this case with one IV, that's as happy as I'm going to be. So regional anesthesia, orthopedic anesthesia were, were perfect for that. Cool. Um, how was your time in Seattle? Did you uh, like Seattle? Seattle was interesting. So the city itself, my wife loved. Uh, oh. We live right downtown, right next to, I trained at Virginia Mason. So right. uh, it's on First Hill uh, and, you know, right down in the thick of things. Uh, my wife loved it. We had a new baby. She'd take him to all the, the lakes and the parks and the, the things like that. My time mostly consisted of going from our apartment, which was in Capitol Hill, you know, kind of trendy, music, grunge, little drugs and alcohol kind of area, uh, walking maybe a mile, maybe a little less than a mile uh, every morning and then back to and from work. And so, you know, Seattle was fine. Uh, yeah. I really like the training I got. I really do like yeah. the people that I worked with and, and things like that. I think that that hospital system did, you know, quality. Everyone was always on the same page. You know, they, the way that they approached patient care uh, from a system level, every person bought into it. And so it was really easy to, to take part of that, to be part of that and to become part of the team, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of hospitals and systems struggle with. So uh, that was really where, the benefit was for me seeing that system learning from you know really really good great people who uh, have a history right when you talk about anesthesia regional anesthesia was the first um and so a lot of that came from virginia mason and so there's you know just a lot of good history there where do you see this field going like if like five years from now do you see regional becoming more of like just an ASC thing or do you see like every generalist being comfortable with you know five blocks like in their toolbox and it just becomes like an expectation that everybody knows how to do this or do you see them sort of separating themselves and making a, a distinct subspecialty 
I mean, so they, the, the fellowships are now all ACGME accredited, which not all, most are ACGME accredited, which when I uh, went through training, none of them were. It came about two years after I came out. The changes in the job market, I think the changes in the way we train people, uh, the fact that ultrasounds have gotten so much better, and there's been such a significant uh, uptake of regional anesthesia in the past 10 years, it's an expectation that everyone who graduates is able to do, like you said, these basic things. You know, you got to be able to do upper extremity blocks, interscaling, supraclavicular, which you can be able to do essentially every surgical procedure. You got to be able to do some truncal blocks, tap block, pex blocks, things like that. And then, you know, basic lower extremity, popliteal, and adductor. Almost everyone we see graduating coming through is comfortable with that. So when you look at our group, uh, the way that we have evolved our acute pain service is that we always have an acute pain attending for the day with, you know, a couple residents, two, three, four, whatever it might be. Um, and then the attendings who have rooms that have blocks in them almost universally do those blocks themselves. And so I think that's a representation of what we see in this field is that the folks who are coming out of training, because that's most of the people who are hiring uh, are coming out of training or, or shorter from training. They're all comfortable. They're all excited. They're all, uh, they all want to do those things. Whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that maybe wasn't a thing. You were very unique if you got to do, uh, if you had this skill set. So I think that you're right. It's that second option that more people are going to be expected to have those basic blocks. And then there'll still be a role for regionalists, you know, at academic centers, uh, at places that are doing higher complexity uh, nerve blocks, things of that nature. And then for consultation, you know, it's not uh, the model that we have, but a lot of groups, uh, the acute pain service is a consultation service for med management uh, with complex patients. So there's still a role for it. But to your point of, you know, where do I see this going? I think that it's going to be an expectation. Everyone meets those bare minimums. And I think people want to do that. I think people are you know, that's an exciting part of their day and exciting part of their job for most people. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. I love APS. Like I enjoy the rotation and I kind of miss it when I'm not on rotation. Like I wish it was built more into my practice, which is yeah. actually one of the best parts about being at the Merriam is you're almost guaranteed to be in like a ortho room and then you get to do spinals and blocks. And those are, those are yeah. fun days. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because we go through, uh, you know, ebbs and flows with the residents and, you know, some of the senior residents say, oh, you know, the Miriam, it's just, you know, it's all basic. And I'm like, that is what anesthesia is. You know, right. that is 99% right. of anesthesia is blocks, spinals, you know, a little bit more rapid turnover, relatively LMAs. healthy people, LMAs. You yeah. know, that's the majority of anesthesia outside of the academic world. And obviously right. not everyone's going to end up in an academic institution. So more of your practice, uh, assuming you go into OR anesthesia mm -hmm. is going to mirror the Miriam, you know, uh, maybe a community plus kind of hospital versus a tertiary or quaternary care center. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, since you kind of alluded to it before, when you first were hired at Rhode Island Hospital, did you come in as sort of the head of the department for um, like our ortho trauma anesthesia slash APS? So when I started, uh, so the contract I signed or the offer I got, I guess I should say, was from PAI, so the private group. In the six months between when I got that offer and actually started, uh, the group went from being 
PAI, so Providence Anesthesia, to becoming, you know, the Brown University Department uh, that we kind of are at now. In that transition, uh, we had a period of time. So when I first started, there were no residents. They hadn't even, I don't think they'd even submitted the residency application at that point. Uh, so when I came in, basically what I was tasked with by our chair was kind of come up with a plan for how we, what the service would look like. And I can tell you it's evolved in the five and a half years I've been here. It's evolved four or five times because every time we get more residents, we bring out new surgical lines, things like that. The expectations change. Uh, the, you know, the types of blocks and procedures and things like that that we do have changed. So it wasn't a perfect one-to-one like, oh, you will be hired to be the acute pain and, and trauma kind of orthopedics guy. It was, you're hired as a regional guy. And then, oh, by the way, we have a residency we're starting. And then, oh, by the way, could you get an acute pain service going? So I think it worked out really well. Uh, but it wasn't just it wasn't just this linear thing like oh you are coming into you know to have this job. What's uh, something or a couple of things that you think you've accomplished in the past four or five years since having that role? Um, well, so I think that it the things that we've accomplished are it's kind of every time you think about it, it's more impressive. Uh, some, of your, some of your fav- your favorites. Yeah, as a department, I would say we've just grown so much that, you know, for the acute pain service, right, when I started, they were doing um, 2,500 blocks a year for procedures a year. That's almost 4,000 now. So the volume that we've been able to derive has been awesome. The uptake from our surgeons, the interest, things like that has just gone through the roof, which is great. Uh, I think that outside of just the procedural aspect, which again is awesome. I think we've trained a whole bunch of residents that I frequently get text messages from former grads, uh, some of our people who we've hired that stayed on as faculty, you know, hey, I remember this tip, this trick, whatever. And I was able to have my block succeed with a new junior resident I'm taking through. Uh, One of the best ones was that the first residency class we graduated one of the guys went to a private practice. Two weeks later, after graduation, he he texted me. He had just started. He said, I just did a block that no one else could do. You know, no one else could get a view, couldn't get it together. And I did what you told me. I scanned down to the supraclavicular. I scanned up to the nerve roots at the at the cervical, at the level of the cords uh, and the roots. And I literally traced the local back. And I was confident in that block when no one else could even find anything. And so I think that that was kind of a, a cool thing to be like, wow, we're actually making people who will go out and, and do yeah. this on their own. You know, you that's don't huge. That's that. a, that's a cool feeling. It's a really cool yeah. feeling. So I think from a regional standpoint, those have been being huge. Uh, we've recruited uh, a couple of folks to, to join the regional group who are actually regionally trained. Uh, so we have two other folks and then we've grown the host of, or the complement of uh, kind of faculty that are able to help want to help play a big role in the department and uh, the acute pain service day to day. And those are the folks who are maybe generalists or, you know, we have a few region, uh, regional cardiac, regional PD people that help bring in more volume, help uh, kind of make things a nice stable flow for the day when it's really busy. Uh, and I think that seeing them join the fold and uh, help train the residents has been awesome. Sweet. Sweet. This yeah. is an intermission. You're about halfway through the episode. 
now would be a good time to take a break, put the podcast down, and come back to it at a later time. If you're really into the episode and you want to keep pushing forward, then just push ahead 15 seconds and keep on going. If you do take a break, you're going to want to be sure to come back because most of the guests seem to save their best for last, and you're not going to want to miss what's coming up next. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree that it seems like all the young, uh, new hires that we've had in this department are all very comfortable teaching blocks. And I find myself like when I was on APS and it was late in the day, you could just grab whoever was in pre-op and say, hey, can you staff this block with me? And there was almost no question that they would be able to do it with you. Yeah. And I would say that if you look back three and a half years ago with our first class of residents, uh, that wasn't true at all. Mm. Uh, I used to stay late multiple days of the week to, you know, do the mm. PEX block at 530 yeah. to do, you know, the tap block, the paraprotebral erectospinic, something like that, that uh, there wasn't anyone around to do. And now I don't even worry about it. I don't even look at the list to see, is there someone? Because I know that yeah. of the six people, there's going to be one. Right, right. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so do you think that position that you came into sort of led you to taking on administrative roles within the department? Because when you look at sort of the way your career progressed, it seems like you've been able to dip your toe and really now enter the room into the administrative part of the hospital. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it definitely did. Um, I think that the success of the acute pain service uh, kind of allowed me to leverage it into other roles. Uh, meaning the, you know, I went from being the director of the acute pain service, uh, which I obviously, you know, developed and established, uh, to becoming a vice chair of our department, uh, over the course of about two, two and a half years. And I think that transition was an important one because that's what ultimately led me where I am now, where, where I have, uh, you know, a, a hospital and department level roles. So going from acute pain to, uh, the vice chair role, you know, it was really just always about being available. Uh, when people had a question about anything related to anesthesia, they, you know, they don't want to bother Gil with, Hey, does this person, you know, need to be MPO? Can, you know, these basic questions, uh, building connections by being the one that was available. So every nurse has my phone number. Every tech has my phone number. Every PACU nurse has my phone number. When they have a question, they just pick up and call me. And so you start to get involved in things. Hey, we're having an issue with this. You know, can you help us? Yeah, I'm happy to help. Um, and just having that like mentality of like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help. How can I help being available, getting an answer, following through, even if I don't know it. So if I get a call back then from you know, the PACU manager, hey, we're having issues with sign out or we're not getting the I's and O's or whatever. It's, you know, I don't know actually how we get that done, but let me look into this and, and I'll get back to you. And even if I wasn't the person to give them the right answer, I'd be like, hey, go talk to Chris, because Chris is the one that knows the answer. To this. So let me put you guys in contact. Here's his phone number. Um, when you did things like that, all of a sudden you became a valuable person to the department because you were, mm -hmm. you know, someone who people could look to, someone who um, people know they could depend on. And so mm -hmm. that became uh, our chairman being able to depend on me. And it was like, okay, well, now we need to deal with COVID, right? That was kind of the, the first big thing for me. Okay, we need to deal with COVID. How do we do that safely? What are the protocols we need? How do we protect the machines? How do we protect our staff? How do we protect other patients? You know, mm -hmm. someone's got to do that and be up to date on it. Okay, you've, you've been available. You've been involved. Why don't you do it? Okay, mm -hmm. sounds good. You know, and then that led to 
oh, we're going to grow our GI service and our EP service and this help do that, help do that, take care of that, hmm. take care of that. So that created more and more opportunity within the department. And then once you had all those departmental roles kind of set up, you're like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff. When they were changing the OR structure, uh, Dr. De Oliveira came to me and said, hey, you know, we're going to play a bigger role in running the operating room along with our, you know, nursing and surgical colleagues. Are you interested? And I was like, okay, sounds like a good gig, you know, doing a lot of the things I'm doing now, but actually getting a little more support, a little bit more time to do them. Um, and, you know, having the ability to actually drive change from uh, within the system, as opposed to when you were, you know, the anesthesia vice chair, you were, every change you had to do, it was me. I'd always say it was beg, borrowing and stealing from someone to be like, Hey, can you do this for me? Hey, could you do me a favor? Hey, you, you know, so you get a little bit, it's a little bit easier to do it in some ways uh, from where I am now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice that you gave at the beginning where you said, make yourself available and then people will get comfortable asking you. And then from that, you become reliable and dependable. Um, that was a very natural progression that your career seemed to take. Yeah, um, I, I think that probably goes back to your sur my surgical training, which was, you know, everyone, they, my intern year when they're telling you, oh, you got to build a practice and this, you always got to be available, you know, to your patients, to other surgeons, you know, so it kind of, that kind of stuck with me. And I think that that's kind of where it goes back to. How are you at saying no when somebody asks you to do something? I've gotten much better at that. Uh, and it depends on what it is, right? So uh, I think I've learned that there are some things. So I used, you know, I also take care of our department's anesthesia equipment. So I used to take every meeting from every vendor who was trying to sell something or, uh, you know, was a sponsor of our equipment, you know, every time the Drager guy or the, the stores guy wanted to talk or, you know, Hey, can I just show you this new equipment or can I help you? I'd say, oh yeah, come on, come on, come on. And to some degree that helped, right? Because then every time I needed something, hey, we're having a problem with this piece of equipment, I could pick up the phone and call them, right? So it kind of worked both ways. But now as I've moved on, I have a little bit more on my plate day to day. Uh, now I've realized like, you know, some of those people, if it's an item or a product that we are never going to use, or maybe we don't, they get put to the no pile. Like, hey, sorry, I appreciate you reaching out. I'll keep you in mind if we ever need you in the future. No, I'm not going to spend an hour of my day with you. Um, then you have things that, you know, you kind of know you have to do, but they're not right now. So it's, oh yeah, I'm happy to write you that letter of recommendation. Uh, you know, let me know eight weeks before the deadline, I'll get it together for you. Um, and then you have the things that are like, you know, coming directly from above, like, hey, I need you to do this. And that's like, you drop what you're doing, you take care of those things. And then the last group is the things that you want to do. And the things that you know are going to be valued by, you know, external things, you know, getting a call from a PACU nurse or pre-op nurse. Hey, you know, my family members having this issue, they're having surgery. Can you help make sure that, you know, they get the anesthesia person I like or, uh, you know, things like that. Those are things that you want to do that I still make plenty of time for because uh, I think, again, they're valuable. Those relationships are what allow you to succeed. Um, and so I've definitely gotten better at saying no, but it's also about prioritizing it. So I'll say no, but say, but I can do it, you know, at X point when I know I have a little time. I think you just described the process of triaging, which is what makes yes. any good physician a great physician. Yes, that is true. I mean, that is, that is functionally what you're doing. It's, uh, as the days get busier, 
you know, as you know, I have a very busy clinical load. I usually cover a full assignment plus RQ pain service. And then I have a lot of, you know, administrative stuff. Um, so I've learned that you can't always do everything yourself. I certainly rely on a lot of my partners for clinical stuff. Ask uh, Dr. Hunter and Dr. Wartzman how many times a day that I call them, I'm looking for them to help wake a patient, you know, start a case, things like that. Um, but I used to feel kind of bad about doing it and I don't anymore because I just realized they're, you know, they, I would do the same for them and it's right. a team right. sport more than maybe you realize even. Right. Absolutely. Uh, can you take us into like an average day of like what the vice chair of logistics does? Like what, what is your role? Like, like who are you in the room with? Mm. What kind of meeting, like what's an average day look like? Uh, okay. Average day. So I'll give you like kind of a mediocre day. Sure. Um, <laughs> so the, yeah. So for example, um, on a day like today, I would come in at, uh, about six to six fifteen, Uh, and I go to my office, plug in my computer. Cause I bring that home every night to do a little work, plug in my computer, have my cup of coffee, uh, look through some emails from the evening into the morning. I'll go through any safety events from the OR overnight because we get those, you know, in real time. Um, and then I'll start looking through my cases for the day. Usually, uh, and today wasn't a day, but usually if I'm an acute pain attending, I'll look through uh, the pain list that has been sent to me by the residents the night before. I'll do my own comparison to make sure that they either, you know, didn't miss things or things that they may have thought were appropriate for you know, a block or a spinal or something like that, uh, that are corrected at that point. Uh, I make a flow for that morning. So I'll text message the APS residents and kind of set them to uh, make sure that they know where they need to be. And then I'll talk to my residents for the morning and, you know, let them know any changes. Uh, because I cover the orthopedics trauma room, there's usually a lot of, you know, moving around in the morning for that group. So by 7 a.m., I've laid all those plans, responded to my emails, if I'm lucky, I'll get a little bit of time to do, uh, you know, some work on some presentations for the upcoming days. Seven o'clock, head up to the operating rooms, uh, see my patients, help put in lines, things like that. Do any blocks that need to occur before the 7.30 or 8 o'clock uh, rush. Start my cases. And then usually by about 8.30, 8.45, things have stabilized. So that's a moment where I can say, okay. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I'm going to um, check my email again and then uh, give any breaks I have to. Touch base with the APS residents while I'm giving the breaks, moving around. And then at 10 o'clock every day, we have our uh, schedule meeting for the operating room. So uh, as medical director of the operating room, we uh, have a schedule meeting every day. It involves all the service line leads for the operating rooms, myself. Uh, the business director for the operating room, the uh, nursing directors for uh, quality, uh, pre-op PACU, the OR, uh, as well as some other uh, engineering and business folks. We have this meeting to make sure that all the cases are placed appropriately, uh, that anything that people have booked since uh, you know the previous day is placed appropriately into location, time, things of that nature. And that sets the flow for the next few days to be, you know, a little bit uh, more seamless. Uh, that usually goes to about 10, 15, 10, 20. 
uh, if we're unlucky. Uh, and then I usually have meetings from about 1030 till 1130 or noon. Uh, who those are with depends. I have an admin who is awesome and helps make sure that I, you know, don't overlap too much. Um, and then we start lunch breaks. So we'll give uh, one, two, three lunch breaks, depending on uh, what the day looks like. Obviously, if there are any blocks or procedures in there, starting cases, I run up to the OR to do those things. Um, and then we'll do some teaching in the afternoon. I uh, usually finish my lunches, finish my teaching, uh, get back to my office, maybe one o'clock, do the same thing again. Emails, usually I book a couple meetings between one and three o'clock. Around three o'clock, if you're not on call, we start to hand off cases to uh, call providers. So I'll hand off some cases to call providers. And then I usually stay for another two hours to actually do some work. So finish responding to emails, presentations, um, uh, do a lot of data gathering and analytics for the OR, uh, both for quality as well as efficiency. So I'll usually dig through some of that data uh, at that time to make sure that we're not missing any trends, make sure that you know everything I need to evaluate for first case on time starts, turnovers, things of that nature, I've at least taken a peek at uh, and then you know responded out through if I need to. Hopefully at that point I go home. And usually there's at least three or four cups of coffee in that mix that I probably didn't know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty full day. Yeah. It's usually a busy day, but they usually go by pretty quick. So that part's always nice. How'd it feel? Well, do you remember the first day you had your new office? Like what that feeling was like getting your own office? Uh, so I had an office before this. Uh, it was a little further from the operating room. So I did not use it as much. Um, and I shared it with a few people, which was, Fine. Uh, Over in this the, office in the APC and the APC, yeah. yeah. Um, so, as you know, that's not a reasonable distance to yeah, kind yeah. of do clinical work at. Right. My new office is right below the OR, so it's you know, I'm, uh, I would say thirty seconds away at all times. Um, so the first day I went in that office, it was kind of yuck. <laughs> it hadn't been cleaned up, things like that. So first thing was cleaned up, painted, new desk. Uh, and then about a week into it, I kind of had that feeling you're describing walking and being like, wow, I have my own office. Like I have a window. It's oh, that's cool. kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. So, um, that feeling was pretty nice to be able to say like, okay, I have a place where I can actually hold meetings. Um, uh, you know, I have a place I can get work done. Uh, and really the amount of data I work through, um, having like the two big screens to be able to do work on, which I don't even have at home is Absolutely awesome. I mean, that's that's a game changer. So I, I I love that aspect of my office. Very cool. All right. In the last couple of minutes we have left, I'll leave you with this question. Um, for someone who still has such a young career, but kind of found themselves in like a you know a department that was getting new leadership, and you happen to be part of that leadership, and now have ascended pretty quickly in that leadership. What gets you out of the bed in the morning? To like, what do you strive for? And like. Where do you see your career going in the future? Good question. Um, so I think the thing that gets me out of the, the bed in the morning is the people I work with. I mean, I, I really do like the people I work with. I know all the PACU nurses. I know all the, the pre-op nurses. I know most of the OR nurses, the residents, the, you know, I know the people that I work with and I really love that. Um, what gets me motivated to like go to work at six o'clock as opposed to seven o'clock because 
seven o'clock would be the go talk to all these people uh, is the ability to make small changes, you know, to improve things. Uh, when I was just vice chair, uh, that was what motivated me all the time to be able to make small differences. Most of it was for our people, right? So for the anesthesia folks, it was like, oh, the ventilators aren't working well. Let me see what I can do to get better ones or to get them fixed. We need more ultrasounds. We need more of this. We need that. We need to, you know, adjust this. So back then it was all about us. And now I've got like a bigger group of people uh, to try and help. Uh, you know, now the surgeons will often call me with issues. I'll get calls from nurses that, you know, how I can help to, you know, whether it's a safety issue or quality or whatever it might be. So the ability to like kind of tackle those small tasks day to day, I really love. Um, and you can have small wins. Now I'm at the stage, you know, I've been in this role for, you know, for maybe six months, give or take. Um, and I've realized that the small wins are what get you through day to day, but then it's the big wins, the like, you know, trying to really change quality or to change the way we do something as a whole unit and working through that as a team, you know, we have so many meetings looking at these various things and they're so complex. Whenever you, you know, whenever you think about it, you're like, oh, that's not that bad. And then you get into the nitty gritty go, holy good God, this is, this is just so much more complex than you think. So now I'm at that stage where we're, you know, we're starting to have groups working through a lot of these things. And it's not just the little things anymore. I think there'll be more, more big things. Um, what was the second half of that question? I can't remember. Where, where, uh, where do you see your career going? Oh yeah. I don't know. Uh, it, it's been at this, up to this point, I just let it flow. Right. You know, I, Oh, surgery's not working out. Well, let's go to anesthesia. Oh, uh, you know, the job market's tight. Go get a good fellowship. Oh, okay. You know, uh, this job, it looks like a great job. You should try it. Okay, great. Let's try it. Oh, you're going to start a division. Okay, great. Oh, now you're going to help build up that. So I'm just going to follow it and see where we go. I love where we live. I love the people. So I, I you know, I'm going to stay where we are and I'm going to just see where things go naturally. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see where your career takes you. Uh, thanks for spending some time with me. I took away some really helpful information and advice on how to be available and be a leader. And it's been awesome talking to you, man. Seriously. That was cool. Good talking to you too. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. I'll see you later. Bye. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes of the show as they drop right to your homepage. If you really, really like what you hear, be sure to rate and review so that other people can find the show easily and also tell a friend so they could check it out too. Special thanks to all the guests who come on the show and help make my job a lot easier and hopefully make an entertaining time for you guys to listen to. We'll see you next time.